This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Meanwhile, you can turn to the book of Romans if you like. Romans chapter 3 is where we're at. You might want to grab the, uh, your mobile device on the Huicala app. You can actually take notes on your Huicala app as well. Click on today's message. Click on the button that says fill in notes. It'll uh, pop open a web browser where you can type in your notes there. Just write some stuff down as we go through this passage. I know for sure it'll be a help to you. If you've missed the message so far, uh, you can always get caught up on the Huicala app or wherever you get your podcasts from uh, and stay caught up. We uh, find ourselves officially today kicking off chapter number three. I know, like six of us are super excited about that, right? Uh, and so uh, it, it's good. Uh, and so I hope you'll be encouraged by this. I was going to uh, take a look at the first eight verses here in this passage this morning. And I did you a favor, okay? Uh, because if I had taken the first eight, eight verses today, the message would have been about two hours, two and a half hours in length. And so I did you a favor. I chopped it into two. So we'll be out of here by one o'clock today, I promise, okay? So <laughs> that was a joke. Some, of our, some people are excited about that. That's okay. Uh, if you want to hang out afterwards and, and talk, we can do that too. But uh, no, seriously, I, I did chop it out today. and We're just going to take a look at the first four verses. We'll read the first eight verses just for the sake of context, uh, but we'll really parse through those additional four verses next week. And so uh, today we're taking a look at this. Just to kind of get you caught up here, uh, so far we find ourselves at the beginning of uh, the third chapter. Chapter number one, uh, basic introduction that Paul gives. He was writing to the church at Rome. He's never been there before, uh, but he's really excited to be able to travel there. Uh, we know this now, that Paul would never have the opportunity to go to the church at Rome and worship with them and serve alongside them. The only time Paul would ever actually go to Rome was during his imprisonment. And so he's writing a letter to a church he's never been to before. He's really excited about going uh, to see them. He said, uh, verse number 16, he's excited to preach the gospel there. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He wants to be a blessing to the church. He wants the church to be a blessing to him. Starting about verse number 18 in chapter number one, he begins to talk about what happens when we push God to the side and serve a God of idolatry or a God of self. And then we see the downward spiral of mankind as he pushes God further and further away and his heart becomes more and more dark towards the things of God and more towards the things of, of this world. We get to chapter number two, and Paul shifts gears a little bit. He talks about the Jews and how they think that they're better than the Gentiles uh, by the fact that they're God's chosen people. They feel like they have a, a different position over other people because of uh, the fact that they're Jews. And so he kind of brings them back down to earth, if you will. And towards the end of chapter two, he tells them, hey, you're basically hypocrites. You're telling people not to commit adultery, but you're committing adultery. You want to teach other people, but you haven't even taught yourself. Then he gets down to the end of, of chapter two, and he talks about circumcision. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks, the covenants and circumcision, and basically tells them this. Hey, if you want to get circumcised, but you don't want to obey God, your circumcision's basically worthless. It's, it's, it's no effect. It's no use whatsoever. And you have a guy who's never been circumcised, who's not one of God's covenant people, but he obeys the word of God. His life is actually better than yours. And so Paul really kind of puts them in place here. And so... I can imagine the Jews that are reading this letter are a little bit frustrated at this point. And so Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in, verse, in chapter number three, uh, kicks this off to tell them, hey, 
it's okay, don't get your, your feathers ruffled, uh, because Jews are actually have quite uh, some benefits to their account. And so we'll take a look at that in verses 1 through 4 today. Uh, we'll read verses through verse number 8 just for the sake of context again. Romans chapter 3, verse number 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So many times when you go to a store and you check it out, they begin to ask, you know, hey, do you have an email address on file? Hey, can we put your phone number in the system and stuff like that? And I think probably the worst offenders in the world would be bath and body works. Like you just, I, I just want hand sanitizer. I don't want to give you my social security number or like my last three addresses. I can't do it. But then the question that I always have, why do you want this personal information? Other than the fact that you want to track me like the FBI and figure out like what I'm buying and stuff like that. And they, they say it's like, oh, we want to, want to notify you of upcoming sales and things like that. I don't care that three-wick candles are on sale two for one for the month of October. That doesn't interest me at all. I don't care that pumpkin spice hand sanitizer is now back in stock. I don't need that in my life. No benefit, right? If you can imagine the Jews after receiving kind of a scathing rebuke from Paul in chapter number two here are like, what, what benefit then is it, is it to be a Jew? I mean, like, if you're saying our circumcision is of no effect, if you're saying that, that God's salvation is now open to everybody, what's the benefit of being a Jew? And so that's the question that we, we jump off with. So is there any benefit to being a Jew? And so, but if we look, read the Old Testament, we find there has to be a benefit to being a Jew. I mean, God created the Abrahamic covenant with them. God made of them a great nation out of these people. There has to be some benefit to this. Of all the promises in the Old Testament, I mean, the entire Old Testament is about the Jews. And so then we get to the New Testament and we basically say, yeah, all that's past now. Jews are, are no good. That can't be the case. And so we have to really dig into this and figure out exactly what Paul's saying. So verse number one, what advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there in circumcision? Well, we see that Israel certainly had a favored relationship with God for sure. Again, we took a look at the Abrahamic covenant over the last couple of weeks. God promised uh, to give them a land, a seed, and a blessing. So there was definitely a favored relationship that they had. They were different than everybody else. God, back in the book of Exodus, when he told uh, Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, said in Exodus chapter 19, verse number 6, And it shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse number 14, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord thy God, the earth also with all that is therein. Only the Lord hath a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people as it is to this day. 
So God took the children of Israel, again, the offspring of Abraham, just like he promised that he would, and he elevated them to a unique position among all the nations. These were God's people. Uh, God would do things through them that he would never do through anyone else. He had highly favored them, and they were in a unique position. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse number 2, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. It's interesting to note that word peculiar that we find in the Bible doesn't mean weird the way that you and I think of peculiar. Uh, All of us have some uh, peculiar family members that are unique in special ways. That's not what this verse is talking about. Uh, The word peculiar as we find it in scripture always denotes a purchased possession. So when God calls these a peculiar people, he's saying, you're mine because I purchased you. Uh, We find this phrase also in the New Testament, we're we're to be a peculiar people that are uh, separated unto good works. That word peculiar, again, even in the New Testament, means a purchased possession that belongs to God. It doesn't mean weird or awkward. So again, if we read through the Old Testament, you cannot get around the fact that Israel's unique. They always have been, they always will be. Uh, someone had, had asked me a question last week because I had misspoken. I had said something along the lines of the Abrahamic covenant uh, was fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. Uh, that was a, uh, a mis- mistake, uh, misspeaking that I did. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant did not end when Jesus Christ came. The Abrahamic covenant will go on forever. Uh, we'll get to this a little bit later in the book of Romans as well. That's going to be really important, so I wanted to clear that up. Uh, that the Abrahamic covenant wasn't annulled by the new covenant. It's just a different covenant now with all people as opposed to the covenant with the children of Israel uniquely. But the uh, Abrahamic covenant was an everlasting covenant that God would forever favor Israel. Uh, That's why even today, if you take a look at a map where Israel's located on a map, it should be really easy to steamroll that and take that land for, for any other Middle Eastern nation over there. But they can't seem to make that happen because that plot of land was given to them by God himself should be really easy to roll over the Israeli military. They're very small, but uh, they're very strong when it comes to military action. Why? Because uh, to this day, God continues to favor the nation of Israel. And any friend of Israel should automatically uh, be a friend of ours. And so that's not a foreign policy or political statement. That's just saying, hey, God promises to bless those that come alongside Israel. And we should support Israel for sure. But when it comes to this, then, then what does that mean that they have a favored relationship with, with God? Being a Jew did not necessarily give them eternal life. And so this is where they really gotten off track. They thought, hey, we're Jews. We're God's people. We don't need this whole Jesus thing. We don't need the cross thing. We've got our own thing going on. That's for the Gentiles. And Paul's like, oh, no, no, no. This Jesus thing is for everyone. And so <coughs> the, the Jews were famous for saying that they were the children of Abraham, we see this even with the Pharisees when they talked with uh, Jesus, uh, said, we're of our father Abraham. Uh, And so they, again, always wanted to make note of the fact that they were Abraham's descendants, therefore they had a special position with God. But as we see the the unpacking in the New Testament of this new covenant, again, uh, new covenant now in the the New Testament, uh, the word testament also can be used synonymously with the word covenant. New covenant in the New Testament we see now that being the physical descendant of Abraham doesn't really mean a whole lot uh, these days. Being a physical descendant of Abraham did not make one a spiritual descendant of Abraham. 
So again, if we go back to the Abrahamic covenant and we remember that there were the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to give land, a seed, and a blessing, and that all the nations of the world through Abraham would be blessed. You and I are beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant because we're blessed through the person of Jesus Christ that came from Abraham's lineage. Now, there arose a problem in the early church in the Galatian region where these false teachers were going to the different churches and they were saying to these Gentiles and new Christians, hey guys, uh, the fact that you're following Jesus, that's fine, but if you really want to go to heaven and be saved, you need to keep the law, circumcise your boys, keep all the feast days, make the yearly sacrifices, go to the temple, that's how you do this. Your Christianity thing is just an add-on to the law. And so Paul's like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Paul said that that was a perversion of the gospel. And so Paul writes a letter to these churches called the letter to the churches at Galatia, or as we know, the book of Galatians. And he tells them, guys, Christianity is not an add-on to the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Christianity is a beginning of the new covenant that God promised. So we find in uh, Galatians chapter 3, as Paul writes this letter to write the error of the false teaching there. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Now, pause here for just a second. What Paul is saying, he's making a revolutionary statement here. All of you who claim lineage back to Abraham as Jews... You're not really the descendants of Abraham the way God intended because only those who are, have their faith in Jesus now are truly the descendants of Abraham. Take a look at that verse again, Galatians chapter 3, verse number 6. Even as Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, those that have been saved or born again, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify The heathen through faith. Who's the heathen? These are those uncircumcised non-Jews that would be considered heathens and pagans. God would justify or save them through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So Paul's saying to them now, hey, it's great that you're a Jew, but if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you're still not going to heaven. It's great that Abraham is your father. You might be able to trace your lineage back to the different tribes that your parents were a part of and your grandparents. That's fine. But this Gentile guy over here that's put his faith in Jesus, he's got Abraham's lineage in him as well. And so this would have been just like a a shock to the system, if you will, of the way that things were being done. And so when we look at this, we say, well, okay, Abraham was saved, but not all the Jews were saved is what this is saying. And so uh, one of my friends uh, last week when he left church, he says, "Uh, Pastor, I got a question for you. You Don't don't answer it now, I'll ask you later. I said, okay, ask me now and I'll answer it later. He said, how did Jews and everybody before Jesus Christ, how did they get saved? And I was like, well, I can answer that right now. I said, nope, wait till next week. I said, okay, fine. And so we had some folks over to our house yesterday, and he was there, and he says, Pastor, you want to answer my question from last week? I go, yeah, I'll answer it now. What was the question? And he's just like, oh, 
I said, I, I told you I could have answered that. He said, how did people get saved before Jesus? Was there another way that people were saved? And here, you got to get this. You got to get this. This is critical. There is no other way to be saved apart from faith and repentance. That's it. Always has been, always will be, from Genesis to Revelation until the end of time. The only way that one can be saved is by faith and repentance. So Abraham, how did he get saved? By faith. God said, Abraham, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you where I'm going to make a nation from you. And Abraham did what? He believed God. Again, if you've got your notes there, it's in Galatians chapter 3, verse number 6. Um, I lost it in my notes. Uh, there we go. Even if Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him righteousness. So he, Abraham, look, you got to get this. This is important too. Abraham didn't know the name Jesus Christ. He didn't. Abraham knew nothing of a prophecy of a coming Messiah. Abraham did not know the things that you and I know about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's what Abraham knew. God had given him his word, and he had to take him at his word. And Abraham had sinned against God, and he knew he needed to make that right. Those two things, faith and repentance, are what saved Abraham. The only way that anyone has ever been saved in the history of eternity, has been through faith and repentance. If you and I will be saved from our sins, you got to hear this. You and I have broken God's law. We have sinned against God. The consequences of our sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That means we're going to die, not just a physical death. But get this, when we die, we deserve to go to hell because we've broken God's law. That's what the Bible says. I deserve to go to hell. I've broken God's law, not once or twice, but hundreds of thousands of times I've disobeyed God and I deserve to be punished for my sin. And, and same thing for you. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So because we deserve to go to hell, that's bad, but God's merciful. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God sent his son Jesus to die in your place. But you have to believe, faith, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came to earth to pay for your sins, that he died on the cross and rose again the third day, and that he is the only way to heaven. You've got to believe that. If you don't, you cannot be saved. It requires faith first. But here's the thing. A lot of people believe those things in their head, yeah, I believe in, that there's a Jesus. Yeah, I believe that he died for us. Yeah, I believe that he's the only way to heaven. But here's the, the critical part. You have to be willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. The Bible says that the demons believe and tremble. Like Satan knows that Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. But the key component here is repentance. I've been wrong. I've sinned against God. I need to make things right with God. And the only way that you can do that is through Jesus Christ. So, friend, you need to be born again. If there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, faith and repentance are still required for salvation. You need to do that today. I was a nine-year-old boy when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. I haven't been perfect since I was nine years old, but I've been forgiven since I was nine years old because I was born again. 
Now again, I didn't understand the deep things of the Bible. I didn't understand how the Passover was a picture of the God's coming judgment, how the Passover lamb was a picture of Jesus Christ and the blood applied to the doorpost was a picture of, of God's blood, Christ's blood applied to my sin account. I didn't get any of that. All I knew, I've sinned against God and Jesus is the only way to make it right. Faith and repentance. All the other stuff you can work on later. But you need to, to put your faith in Jesus and be saved. That's the only way that Abraham was saved. That's the only way that David was saved. That's the only way that anybody in all of the Bible was ever saved was by faith and repentance. And if you remember, as we get to the new covenant, before Jesus is crucified, there's a forerunner, somebody who comes before Jesus to kind of sound the alarm bell, to wave the flag, to get your attention. And his name was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had a really important message. Anybody remember the first thing that John the Baptist said? Anybody remember what word? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. John had a message. Repent, because God's judgment is coming. You need to be saved from your sin. And so people would be baptized by John the Baptist, get this, for the repentance of their sins. They got baptized proving that they were sorry for what they had done wrong. And they got baptized by faith, believing that the Messiah was coming. Once Jesus died and rose again, we don't have faith that Messiah is coming. We have faith that our risen Savior has already come. So prior to Christ in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, it was faith and repentance in a coming Redeemer. Once Jesus resurrected from the grave, it's now faith in a risen Savior. So that, Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection literally is the turning point in all of human history. That's why it's so critical for us. So again, Old Testament, faith and repentance. You and I, under the new covenant, faith and repentance, it's the only way to be saved. If you're here today and you say, I don't really know for sure that I'm saved. Friend, be saved today. I don't want you to go to hell, and you don't either. Put your faith in Jesus. He's the only one that can save you from your sins. And so that was required for the Jews, but it's also required for the Gentiles. Nobody gets a pass. Doesn't matter if you were God's chosen people. Doesn't matter what your family tree is, what ethnicity or cultural background you have. Everyone must believe and repent. Can't get around that. So what benefit is it there to be a Jew? Okay, circumcision is of no effect, Paul says, if you don't obey the law. We don't get a free pass to heaven. What, it, what benefit? Take a look at verse number two in our text, Romans chapter three. What advantage hath the Jew? What profit is there in circumcision? Here's what Paul says, much every way. A ton of ways that it, it's good to be a Jew. Chiefly, primarily, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Or oracles means the word or the, the, the law of God. Here's what God said to them through Paul. Hey, you're benefited because I gave you the word of God. And so the Jews had been favored by being entrusted with the word of God. Now think of this for a minute. God didn't tell them, you've been blessed because I gave you land. You've been blessed because I've given you a great nation. You've been blessed because I've given you riches. Uh, you've been blessed because I've given you military might. 
You, you haven't been blessed for any of those things. You've been blessed because I've given you the word of God. Now, if that was, again, Paul uses the word in verse number two there, chiefly, the number one benefit of you being a Jew is that you got to hear from God directly. Everybody else is just winging it. I mean, you take a look at the Old Testament, what were they doing? They were making up gods. Uh, we're going to worship Baal. We're going to call down fire from heaven for Baal. And man, uh, <laughs> Elijah mocking them. Hey, maybe Baal's on a vacation. He forgot to put on his out-of-office reply before he left the office, right? Hey, maybe he's on a long journey. Hey, make it a little bit more noise. Maybe he's asleep. Hey, Maybe Baal had to go to the bathroom while you guys are doing this. You might want to wait for a little while. And he mocks them because they're crying out to a God that they made up on their own. Why would they do that? Because they didn't have the word of God. Again, if Romans 1 tells us that everybody knows there's a God, everybody's without excuse, you know we're not here by accident, you know we didn't make this up on our own, then there's a God somewhere, who is it? And if you don't have the word of God, you just make something up. Oh, we'll call him uh, Ashtaroth and worship him. Oh, we'll worship the sun god. Uh, oh, we'll worship the rain god. Oh, we'll worship uh, Dagon. Oh, we'll build a temple to our, our false god. We're just going to make something up because we don't know any better. God says this, I gave you my word so that you would know me. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to wing it. You can know me. Here's what God says to them in uh, the, where is it, uh, Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse number 10. Wherefore, I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them. God says, here's what I did. I took you out of Egypt and I gave you my word so that you could live, so that you could know me, so I could sanctify. That word sanctify means to set apart, so I could take you off from the rest of the world and separate you to make you special to me, but I did it by giving you my word. Now, mind you, get this. When God speaks of giving them his word, he's primarily talking about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would call that the, the book of the law, those first five books. And man, God says, I gifted you my word. Get this. If the Jews biggest benefit that they had going for them, according to Paul in verse number two, was that they had the word of God, how much more benefited are you and I from having the completion of God's word? They had five books, we got 66. Get this, Moses had the ability to stand before God and talk to God. What a benefit, right? I mean, you read through the, the book of Exodus, people would say things like, Hey, Moses, could you ask God if I can do this or that? And Moses would be like, yeah, man, I'll get back to you. And so Moses would like go and talk to God, and God would give him an answer. Like, how awesome would that be, right? Like, hey, pastor, could you talk to God? Okay, I'll get back to you next week and tell you what God says. I'm like, wow. But if, if your wheels are turning already, you should realize that's not a benefit at all because you and I can go directly to the Father. How about that? You ain't got to talk to me to talk to God. Talk to God yourself. 
well, I know, but how will God talk back to me? Through his word. 66 books of it. He told you exactly what you need to know. And so the benefit for you and I is the fact that we have God's word. We're blessed by God by having a copy of the word of God. And here's the thing. You might think that, again, it's really easy to get a Bible. You download a version app and download the Bible in different languages on your phone in less than 60 seconds. Did you know that there's places in the world where people don't have copies of the Bible? Places in the world where it's illegal to have a copy of the Bible? Places where people don't have the Bible translated in their own language that you and I have it readily available? I own, I don't know what, maybe three, four dozen Bibles? What a gift, the Word of God. And Paul says this is the primary benefit that the children of Israel got was access to the Word of God. I mean, think about it. If, if I told you, hey, God's going to meet you over at, at Alan Wanna Center today, and you guys can grab a cup of coffee and sit down at the table with him, ask any question you want, talk for as long as you want, you'd be like, oh, what a gift. We already have that. You don't get to sit down at a table and have a cup of coffee with him sitting across the table, but when you speak, your father hears. Ask anything you want. He's got answers. You might not like the answers you get, but you'll get an answer. The, the Jews, they had a gift. What was it? Their gift was the word of God. It came to them first. And the word of God was a great comfort to them. But here's the flip side of it. It also required obedience. Look, we're just like the Jews in the fact that we love God's promises. We love God's benefit. We love God's blessings. We don't so much enjoy God's requirements on us. The Jews were the same way. Oh, we're God's people. Are you? Based on what? Oh, based on all the covenants and promises that God's made to us. Yeah, are you keeping your end of the covenant? Well, no, but God's keeping his. Paul's like, hold up. It doesn't work that way. If, if you know God's word, you're on the hook to obey God's word. It's a double-edged sword. You can't take the parts of the Bible that you like and leave the rest. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. Verse of great comfort. For we know that all things work together for good. Dot, dot, dot. Those three dots don't tell the whole story. That verse carries on with what we call a conditional promise. This promise is true if you keep your end of the promise. You do your part, God does his part. Some people, that drives them bananas, like, it's all God, I don't have any part to bring to this. When it comes to your salvation, you have nothing to bring other than your sin and repentance. But when it comes to obeying God, you have everything to bring to that. Romans 8, 28, we, we'll get to this in, in 2027. 20, uh, but <laughs> somebody, they thought they were really funny, said to me this past week, Pastor, uh, I skipped ahead to year 2040 and read Romans chapter 10. I was just like, wow, that's so hurtful. I thought it was... I thought I was doing you a favor by being thorough, but people want to mock me. Uh, but anyways, Romans chapter 8, verse number 28, for we know that all things work together for good to who? To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So there's two conditions on that promise. All things work together for good, yes, but only to people who meet the next two conditions. First of all, do you love God? Oh, I love God. Amazing Grace is my favorite song. That's not love. Oh, I get, I get chicken skin every time I hear, you know, the old rugged cross. That's not love. Jesus says, if you love me, 
keep my commandments. Love, biblical love is always directly connected with obedience in the Bible. You can't separate the two. So, all things work together for good to them that love God through obedience. We'll take that. And who are the called according to his purpose. Who's that? Those that are saved. So you take your unsaved coworker and tell him that all things work together for good. That's not the case because he doesn't meet those two conditions. That promise doesn't apply. You're living in sin and rebellion to God. Everything's not going to work together for good. Everything's going to work together for God's chastisement and God's ultimate glory. But you haven't met the conditions of the promise. And again, if you go on to Romans chapter 8, verse number 29, the verse right after that, what's the good that comes through it? That you would be conformed to the image of Christ. The good that comes from your situation isn't that you get a better job or better pay or a nicer apartment or take a better vacation or your kids in a better school. The good that comes from this is that you'll be more like Jesus Christ. You might lose your job. You might take a cut in pay. Your kid might be not able to go to school but God's going to make you into the, the image of Jesus Christ. That's the good that comes from it. But again, we don't want that. We just want the all things work together for good part. It doesn't work that way. You have to take the whole Bible in totality. And again, many of the promises of the Bible are conditional promises. There's a part for you to obey. And just like the children of Israel, God says, if you'll obey me, I will bless you. And they said, oh, yeah, bring it. We're blessed. And he's just like, well, Where's the obedience to that? And so the Jews' primary error is that they would rejected Jesus as the Messiah. God promised that there would be one that would come that would deliver them from their sins. Prophesied for hundreds of years and they waited for the Messiah to come. Prophets even specified the exact city he would be born in. Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be small, I'm going to do something great through you. And here comes a child born in a manger, born of a virgin, just like it was prophesied in Bethlehem, just like it was prophesied. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh, not my Messiah. You claim to be the son of God, you're a blasphemer. Absolutely not. So they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so as In the the book of Acts, Peter preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He's sharing with them how Christ died for their sins, but he tells them, Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way. Just wanted to remind you, you were the ones that actually put Jesus to death because the Jews didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They saw him as a blasphemer and worthy of death. Acts chapter 3, verse number 25, Peter says, you're the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Hey, you killed Jesus, but he actually came here to bless you, to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham, those covenants that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. This is the fulfillment of that, and you put him to death, but he came to save you from your sins. Acts chapter 13, verse number 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, whosoever among you feareth God to you is the word of salvation sent. Jesus came for you, and you rejected him. John chapter 1, verse number 10. And he came into his own, and his own received him not. So the Jews rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That was their primary error here. 
And so it's interesting to get this. Jesus came to save, first and foremost, the Jews. Some people don't like to hear that. Oh, Jesus came for everybody. Yes, but he came for the Jews first. If you're not a Jew, Jesus came for you second. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it's just the Bible, okay? And again, you don't believe me, Romans chapter 1, verse number 16. We're in Romans right now. If you want to turn back one page, Romans 1, 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation unto the, help me, Jew first and then also to the Greek. Jesus came to save Israel first and foremost, and they rejected him, and Jesus made his offer of salvation open to everyone. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. And so while the Jews had a first chance at salvation, they also had a first chance at condemnation. All Jews to the head of the line. Salvation is offered to you today. Yeah, we don't want it. All Jews to the head of the line. You're going to pay the penalty for your sin. You're condemned to hell. You get a first crack at it, whether you're going up or going down, put it that way. So, again, the Jews had the first opportunity for salvation, but they rejected Jesus as Messiah, and now they're condemned. Keep your finger here in Romans 2. We're going to come back. But turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 20. Jesus gives a parable. There's some verses that are in your notes, but I want you to see it in your Bible, if you would. Luke chapter 20. Verse number 9. Luke chapter 20, verse number 9. Luke chapter 20, verse number 9. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to the husbandman. The husbandman's a gardener. And it went to a far country for a long time. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him the fruit of the vineyard, but the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. So a master plants a garden, the fruit, time for harvest comes. He says, hey, servant, go back and grab my stuff from the vineyard, and the the gardeners are just like, you're not getting anything. Beat the guy up and send him away empty-handed. Okay, verse number 11. And so he sent another servant. And they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away. So it, didn't, it went from bad to worse. They beat this guy up, but then they embarrassed him as well and sent him away. Verse number 12, and again he sent a third. And they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So the question is, what shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? Hmm, interesting question. The master sends prophets who are treated shamefully, beaten, cast to the side. God says, you didn't listen to my prophets. (laughs) Isaiah didn't listen to him. Jeremiah didn't listen to him. I sent you into captivity. I've taken you through difficult circumstances. I've tried to bless you. You will not come back to me. I'll finally send my son. At least you'll respect 
God's own son. But they didn't. They took him outside of the vineyard and killed him. So what shall the master of the vineyard do? Verse number 16. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Hmm. You see what's taking place here? Offer of salvation is given. They said, we don't want it. No, but this is the son of God. Pilate says, what should we do? You know what they said? Crucify him. This is, this is your king. We have no king but Caesar. Not our king. All hail king of the Jews. Ha! Huh. Crucify him. So what does the master do? He takes that gift that was given that was rebuffed and he gives it to others. Who? Came to save the Jews. Jews didn't want it. So the opportunity now is open to the Gentiles, non-Jews for salvation. Everybody has the opportunity for salvation. And again, some of you, this might hurt your feelings knowing that you weren't the first choice, but God offers his salvation to you. And again, we see this in other parables as well. We see the wedding feast that was offered. People were invited to come to the wedding feast and they didn't come. And the master said to the servants, hey, go out and round people up. Tell them again that we're getting ready to have this wedding and they need to come to the feast. Servants come back and says, master, some people came, but there's a lot of room left and nobody else wants to come. He says, I want you to go into the highways and hedges and find anybody who's willing to come and compel them to come in. But the people who were first invited to the feast, they'll never taste of this food. Done. So here we see Jews really messed up when they rejected Christ as Messiah. Now, it's interesting to note, just for practical purposes here, that there's a very, very small percentage of Jews who have heard the gospel, accept Christ as Savior, and have been born again the same way that you and I have been by faith and repentance. They accept Christ as Messiah, yet they continue their cultural Jewish practices for cultural purposes only. Those would be referred to as Messianic Jews. If you hear the term, they're believers, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, they accept Christ as Messiah. Very small percentage of Jews. The majority of Jews are still waiting on the Messiah to come. They reject Christ as a Messiah. They reject the Bible as you and I would hold it as the Word of God. And so they would be under God's wrath and punishment the same way as any other unbeliever would as well. And so the Jews had focused so much on their privileges that they ignored their responsibilities. <clears throat> this is really important for you and I as Christians to understand as well. God's given you and I a lot of privileges. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have the Word of God at your disposal. You have God the Father as your Father who says you can pray to Him anytime and He promises to hear you. All these are privileges. Don't forget your responsibilities. Well, what's my responsibility? My responsibility is to, for God to be glorified through my life. My responsibility is let my light so shine before men that they may see my good deeds and glorify my Father which is in heaven. That's my responsibility. My responsibility is to walk in the Spirit and to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. My responsibility is to be holy because God is holy. These are my responsibilities. I can't just blow those off because now, oh, I'm a child of God. I can live how I want to. So again, we turn back to Romans chapter 2. His 
since the Jews have broken their end of the covenant, would God cast them off? Is this kind of the end of it? They didn't keep up their end of the bargain. Well, no, again, we're talking about covenants, not contracts. If they were in a contract with God, God would have cast them off a long time ago. You even remember a time in the book of Exodus where the children of Israel had fallen into idolatry so quickly and God says, hey, Moses, I think I'm just going to wipe everybody out and start over again. And Moses says, God, please don't. Think of what the heathen will say about your name. And God said, okay. And he didn't. So again, God has given them opportunity again and again and again, and they continue to blow God off. Well, God, let's be the final straw for God. The answer to that's no, because God's always faithful and he always keeps his promises. Amen. He can't go back on that as much as he would probably want to. It didn't turn out the way that I thought that it would. Not, not, I don't mean it that way. Things turned out exactly how God thought they would. It was like it was a surprise to God. But God had greater things in store for Israel, let me say that. But they sold themselves short. God has greater things in store for you and I, but many times we sell ourselves short. God wants to do great things through our lives. God wants to bless other people through our lives. God wants to make his name great through our lives. God wants the gospel to go further through our lives. And we sell ourselves short because uh, we'd rather sit and watch Netflix or scroll on social media. You're selling yourself short. So, again, just because, like we said, the Abrahamic covenant was an everlasting covenant, it'll be in effect forever. God's not going to cast off Israel. Israel's cast off God. Numbers chapter 23, verse number 19. Some of you should jot down this verse and put it on a three-by-five card and commit it to memory this week. God's not a man that he should not lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Hey, if God promised something, you can take it to the bank. It's 100% good. Always. So, somebody wrote us a check a few weeks ago. I, I, I don't write checks anymore. Like, I don't even know where our checkbook would be. And I think if we wrote a check, we'd probably have to mark out the address line and put our current address because, like, I don't really bought, bought checks in 10 years. But we deposited a check in the bank. Get this. Put a hold on it. Why? To make sure that it cleared. Why? Just because you write a check doesn't mean there's money in the bank, right? Just because I promise you something's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen, right? When God makes a promise, there's no holding period on it to make sure that God comes through. He's always coming through. He might not come through in your timetable. He might not come through on your terms and conditions, but he always comes through because he's always good to his word. I had somebody try to tell me a couple weeks ago, well, this happened in my life, that means God failed. No, it means you had wrong expectations of God. God never fails. I remember as a nine-year-old boy, my uh, grandmother had cancer, and I prayed my guts out that God would, would heal her and save her life, and she died. Did God fail? No. My expectations of God as a nine-year-old boy failed. I thought that God listened to everything I had to say, and he moved the universe around in accordance with my whims at nine years old. And here's the crazy thing. Grown-ups think the same thing, too. I just tell God what to do, and he just kind of moves everything around and does what I say. That's not God. You might need to recalibrate your expectations of God because God never fails. God's long-suffering. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
We took a look at several weeks ago, the long-suffering and forbearance of God, that God is waiting. God's giving you an opportunity to get it together before he gives his hand of chastisement or his hand of wrath for unbelievers. God's not, doesn't have a, a hair trigger finger where he's waiting to blast you every time you step out of line. God's long-suffering. With the Jews, God's long-suffering. He's waiting for them to come back to faith in him, which they will one day according to his prophecy that he's made under the new covenant. But he's long-suffering and he's waiting. And God's not going to cast off Israel just because they disobeyed, because they've done that before and they're going to do it again. It's also important to note that God's character stands in stark contrast to the character of mankind. And this is where we as Christians get messed up sometimes too. We take like God... And we put God on our level. And we say things like, well, God did that, but that wasn't fair. Based on what? Well, if I was God, I would have never done that. That's why you're not God. Right? And we forget that the Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways. And God's ways are beyond finding out. Like, you can't comprehend what's taking place in the mind, heart, and plan of God. One author said that God is often doing 10,000 things at one time, and we're aware of about three of them. I guess it's a pretty accurate statement. We don't, can't fully comprehend what God's doing, but take a look at verse number four. It says this. Verse number three says, For what if some did not believe? Shall that make their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Okay, Israel didn't keep their end of the bargain. Does that mean that God's promises are null and void? Absolutely not. God forbid, he says. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Whatever God says, he always does. He's true 100% of the time. And if you disagree with that, you are a liar, according to verse number four. Because at the end of the day, God will always be true, and anybody that stands in opposition to him will always be a liar. Because one of the attributes of God, God is truth. You can't get around that. And so, as we look at this passage of Scripture, again, there's always application in the Bible. Don't just read the Bible for information. Read the Bible for application. What's the application here? I'm not a Jew this doesn't apply to me. The benefit of being a Jew, I don't think about that on a daily basis, but what can I glean from this passage that helps me as a Christian tomorrow morning when I wake up? First of all, you and I have to view the Word of God for the gift that it is. Man, God has spoken to me. This is a good place to pull over for just a second and say this too. God always speaks definitively and authoritatively through his word alone. Amen. Definitively and authoritatively in his word alone. Now, I can give you godly wisdom and counsel, but that's not necessarily authoritative unless I back it up with the word of God. Now, I can say, you know, you shouldn't buy this particular kind of car because the safety ratings on it are terrible and the long-term value on it's awful. If you're planning on selling it in two years, you're going to lose your shirt over it. I can give you advice, but that's not definitive and authoritative because it's not backed up from Scripture. If I can say to you, 
Husbands, God wants you to love your wife the way that Christ loves his church. That's definitive and authoritative. And you can tell me all day long about how you had a dream the other night about your girlfriend from high school and, uh, you know, things where you run through a, a flower field together and the next day, you know, you got a message on Facebook from her and you feel like God's... All that's garbage. All of it. And look, if you think that that's definitive and authoritative, you don't understand the definition of those words. And just know this, your circumstances and situations could be aligned by the hand of God, but your circumstances and situation can also be manipulated by the devil himself. You gotta get that. Oh, maybe God's bringing this together. Maybe God's sowing, or maybe the devil's sowing seeds of doubt in your mind to get you to distrust the word of God. How about that? And so when people come to me, oh, pastor had a dream the other day. It's just like, okay. Um, and, and so again, the question, again, legitimate question, what do we make out of dreams? Nothing. We can't make conscious decisions based on unconscious thoughts and dreams. Again, you say, well, they did that in the Bible. Unique cases when they didn't have the word of God. But you take a look at Hebrews chapter one. In times past, God spoke through prophets and men of old. And these days he's spoken to us. I'm gonna add the words definitively and authoritatively through his son, Jesus Christ who is, according to John chapter 1, verse number 1, the Word of God. There you go. So it's cute that you had a dream. Let's set that to the side and speak definitively and authoritatively from the Word of God. we got to see this as the gift that it is. It's not an ancient text. It's not a good thing to read when I'm down. It's not just uh, something that my parents passed down to me. It's the word of God. And if God was sitting across the table from you telling you everything that you need to know about life and godliness, he would tell you precisely what he's already written. You don't need to have a conversation with him. He's already spoken. Well, I want more than that. Well, when you get to heaven, you can, you know, pull on his robe and see if you can get 10 minutes with him. I don't know how that's going to work, but... He's spoken to you definitively and authoritatively through his word. We should see it for the gift that it is. Next, having access to wisdom and the promises of God gives us an advantage over those who don't have the Bible. You and I, having access to the word of God, have benefits available to us that people who do not have access to the word of God and who are not children of God do not have. I was talking with a friend this past weekend. He said, two years ago, I was going through a rough spot at work, and you told me, answer not a fool according to his folly. And he goes, and I wrote that down because I thought, man, that's some really good advice from the pastor. He goes, I found out later that was in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that smart. Uh, I'm not. But you realize there's a whole book of wisdom, all of it. And you and I have the opportunity to become wise, not because we're smart or because we've got a great education or because we've got a bunch of student loans that we can't pay back. We, we can be wise because we have the word of God. I can understand life relationships and how to treat other people and how I should live and how I can please God and how I can receive his blessings because I have access to the word of God. We're benefited from that. 
Again, Paul says to the Jews in Romans chapter 2, verse number 2, your chief benefit, your primary thing that set you apart from everybody else on the planet was the fact that you had the Word of God. What a gift. However, too much is given, much is required. There's a greater level of accountability for those of us who had access to the Bible. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You got the Bible, now you're held responsible for it. Well, I won't read it then, I'll just be ignorant. (laughs) It doesn't work that way either. So, if you have access to God's word, use it. You're going to be held responsible for it. God's going to hold you accountable for what you know. That's why I want to challenge every single person to become a student of the word of God. I'm thankful if you read a chapter a day. That'd be a great way to start your day, time in God's Word. I'm thankful if you got a, a doctrinally solid devotional book that's got one page of a thought from the Bible every day. That's helpful. But at some point, you got to put your big boy pants on, your big girl pants on, and you got to study and dig into the Word of God. You got to. I remember I was probably 20 years old and uh, went to church three times a week from the time I was born to the time I was 18, left for the Navy at 18, and Nobody was checking on me to see if I was going to church, so I didn't. I went sporadically once every couple of months, once every three months. But then I got to the point when I was probably 20 years old where I really was trying to figure out who I was. You know, I think everybody goes from that transition from childhood to teen years to adulthood and tries to figure out who am I uh, and begin to look at what the world has to offer based on what you were handed from your parents and figure out, this: does this fit who I am and who I want to be? And You make terrible life decisions, whether it be, you know, tattoos or piercings or poor wardrobe choices and things like that. Does anybody remember Jinko jeans, you know, that had like big, huge, straight leg pants? I never wore them, but I wanted them. Uh, But uh, my parents forbid me from wearing hammer pants when I was in seventh grade, and so I'm thankful for that. Uh, But um, again, we're trying to figure out that, like, who am I? And so I began to study other world religions and find out what else is out there. If, if. Muslims and Christians believe in the same God, we just call him by a different name, then I, sh- I want to study that out, and I realize really quickly uh, that Allah doesn't have a son. So that can't be the God of the Bible. We're talking about two different gods here. And so we began, I began to study that out, and I went and sat down at Barnes & Noble and began to read through the Quran. I realized, like, I'm not a Muslim, and I don't buy into this, and so that's not me. And so I began to study Buddhism and some different teachings of that, and Part of it made sense, and part of it I just couldn't wrap my brain around. It, couldn't, it didn't jive with me as far as my search for truth. And here's the great thing. Don't ever discourage people from searching for truth. Because here's what the Bible says. God says you'll find me when you search with all of your heart. And if you're truly searching for truth, you will find up and wind up in one location and one location only. That's not a bad thing. So I'm just looking for truth. And I came down and narrowed it down to the idea that I believe in the God of the Bible and I'm a Christian. And so I began to whittle it down from there. Okay, there's a hundred different denominations and what makes one different from the other. And it came down to, okay, I just want to believe whatever the Bible says. That's it. I don't, I don't care what you call yourself. You call yourself community church, Bible church, you know, whatever you call it. I want to just believe the Bible. And let me just tell you that in the realm of things that call themselves Christians, that makes the scope incredibly narrow. 
Just the Bible alone. Not church tradition, not church fathers, not authors, not other books, just the Bible. That narrows the scope really, really small. And so it came down to it. I, by my conviction, not because my parents told me or because they told me this is best, I made a decision for myself that I believed God's word and I was a Bible-believing Christian by my own conviction. Now, I realized I'm putting all the faith that I have at my disposal in this book, and I'm going to live my life by it. Problem, I've never read the whole thing. I don't really know what it says. I'm going to put my faith in a book that I haven't completely read cover to cover. I'm not saying that you have to have read the whole Bible to believe it. I'm just saying that if you call yourself a Bible-believing Christian, you should know what you believe and why you believe it. That's all. And we do that by becoming a student of the Word of God. And I would commit from that point forward to, the, to now, the next 25 years of my life, to unpacking and living by the Bible. And so that's just been my life's journey. I want to know this book. I want to know the Word of God. I want to know God. And I know God through His Word. So I challenge you, become a student of the Word of God. Become a theologian. Someone who studies who God is, the nature and character of God. If you're a husband, you should lead your wife in knowing the Bible. I said, well, my wife got saved before, before I did. She knows more about the Bible than I Then catch up. I'll help you catch up. But you need to lead well. If you have children in your home, you're responsible for teaching them the word of God. Single moms, single dads, you're responsible for teaching your children the word of God. It's a big deal. Because one of these days, we're going to be held accountable for what we say we believe, whether or not we actually carried it out or not. Final thought here today, and we're done. When you fail, don't give up on God's word. Notice I said when you fail, because it's going to happen. God's promises are not a wash because you couldn't keep your end of the bargain. God's promises are good. If you're taking notes, write down this verse beside your notes you're taking down. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm currently going through uh, premarital counseling with a, a couple that's getting married at the end of this month. And the second lesson that we go over in premarital counseling, we talk about um, walking through marriage through disappointed love. Like, marriage is tough. You face disappointments. How do we walk through those together? What happens when my spouse fails me? Uh, how do I process through that in a healthy way that strengthens our marriage? How do we grow through that together? And um, <laughs> it was really cute because this, this couple, they're sweet. They're clueless. Um, but she, in talking with her, the, the, the girlfriend says, um, well, if my husband ever lets me down, I think this will be helpful. And I was just like, if, that's cute. And she's like, well, I don't, I don't want to go into this assuming that he's going to let me down. No, you need to go into it assuming. He, he will let you down probably within the first like seven days. Like just seriously. Like it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because marriage is hard, it just is. But here's the thing when it comes to God. If there's ever a failure between me and God, it's always 100% on me always, because God never fails. And so when I fail God, and I will, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to pick myself back up and trust in the Word of God. 
And wherever I went wrong somewhere along the way, it wasn't God. God didn't fail me. He didn't let me down. His word didn't come true. It was my fault somewhere, or I just had poor expectations of who God is. And I just need to recalibrate that to be in line with the word of God. God has promised me nothing. God owes me nothing. Anything that I receive is by the grace and the favor of God. The most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you need to be born again today. For those of us that call ourselves Christians, you have access to the most supernatural book that's ever been written in all of human history. Will you make good use of it this week? I hope so. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. 